We have come to the last day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread 2009. And I hope all of you have had a very enjoyable feast this year, and more importantly, a very profitable feast. You know, if we come before God on these days, and we have a wonderful time, we enjoy the feast, we enjoy the company, the fellowship, the foods, the special occasions, but we don't come away changed, what eternal good have these feasts done for us? It's very important for us to understand that we're here to profit from these days. That's the purpose for them, for us to learn. Otherwise, we might as well just eat, drink, and be merry, go about our way, and be the same person we've always been. But I hope that every one of us can say that this Feast of Unleavened Bread has changed us in some fundamental way. This is the day when Israel walked through the Red Sea. And so today we're going to see what this special day means and see in what way it might change us. Perhaps we've come to the end of the feast and we cannot identify some fundamental change, some change of attitude, some change of, of uh, thinking uh, that we have. But on this last day, let us examine ourselves to see if we can still find something fundamentally that we can change about ourselves. Maybe it's just a, a matter of coming to a greater understanding of these days. Maybe it's a change in the way that we think, the way that we feel, the way that we do things. We're going to begin by looking at three scriptures. The first one is found in 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter. It's a very familiar scripture for most of us, 1 Corinthians 10 beginning in verse 1. And this is very relevant to this particular day because it pictures the day when Israel walked through the Red Sea and they came out to a new way of life on the other side. It says, Moreover, brethren, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 10, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So when they walked through the Red Sea, it was a type of baptism. And the Apostle Paul here in 1 Corinthians 10 is reminding us of the fact that that's what that day pictured. That's what this day pictures, a coming up to a new way of life on the other side of the old world in which we lived. Now, this brings us just naturally to Romans, the sixth chapter. Again, another very familiar passage for us because for most of us, this was read when we were baptized, maybe just before or in counseling beforehand. Uh, I usually try to read this right before a person is baptized, along with Luke, the 14th chapter, to remind the individual what it is that he is doing at the time of baptism. So here in verse 3 of Romans 6, it says, Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, this is a, a remarkable passage of Scripture because it tells us what the baptism service means what it is that we're doing when we're baptized. And when we have this read to us, and we're very emotional in many cases when we come to the place of baptism, uh, perhaps this is meaningful to us, or perhaps we're in such a fog because so much is happening so quickly that it doesn't sink in. But brethren, we have to take these words, and these words are life, and we need to understand them to the very depth of our being. And you know the challenge that we have right now is to be able to take these words and to make them new. Not just hear them, not hear words that, that we've heard a hundred times before, read maybe a hundred times before, and just pass over them, but we are to take these words and let them sink deeply into our hearts and our minds. And before this sermon is finished today, I hope that each and every one of us, myself included, can look at our own lives and see something that we need to change and see it enough that we really genuinely want to change, that we can get down on our knees, and we can ask God 
to change us, to make us different, to put to death something that is wrong about us and to come up to a new way of life. The third scripture is Mr. Meredith's favorite scripture, Galatians, the second chapter, and verse 20. And I'm going to read it out of the Old King James Version because in this particular case, the Old King James Version has a slight different word or one different word uh, in part of it that makes a huge difference. As we have heard it so many times before, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. You know, in that one scripture, we have the baptism service summed up. We have summed up what Israel did, as it says in 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, how they were baptized unto Moses, how they went into the sea, and they came up to a new way of life. And that reminds us of what this whole feast is about. If we go back to the Old Testament, to Exodus, the 13th chapter, we see that the Feast of Unleavened Bread tells us that we are to do a couple things. One is something not to do, and the other is something that we are to do. In Exodus 13 and verse 6, it says here, Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. So that's the positive. You shall eat unleavened bread during these seven days. And that's what we've been doing. And on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the eternal. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and no leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all of your quarters. So the positive is to eat the unleavened bread, and the negative is to, well, and I say negative, but really it's a positive as well, is we are to avoid the leavened bread because of what it pictures at this time. In 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, another very well-known scripture and I think you're going to find that all the scriptures we have today are very well known, but I hope that we can look at them in a way that we never have before. In 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6, the Apostle Paul is telling the Corinthians about some of their faults, and he says that your glorying, your broad-mindedness, your uh, tolerance of sin is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And just as a woman who makes bread, or a man for that matter, he takes a little bit of leaven, he puts it in a lump of dough, that leaven spreads all through that dough, especially if it's a yeast type of, of leavening. And, and it spreads until the whole lump of dough is, is leavened. And he says, it's not good because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. This sin that you're tolerating, this this terrible sin that was going on in the congregation that we read of in the first verse there uh, is going to spread to others. He says, therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So in the way that we think and the way that we act, we are to practice the truth. We are to walk in the truth. And we are to uh, have sincerity of heart. It deals with the mind and also the actions here. Uh, we are to live a life that is unleavened as opposed to a leavened life. Now, simply put, what we see from these verses is that we are to put something out and to take something else in. And that brings us back to this very special verse that Mr. Meredith sees as his favorite verse, uh, which is Galatians, the second chapter, and verse 20. And probably more than any other verse, if you want to take one verse that really summarizes the spiritual significance of this day, it is Galatians 2 and verse 20. And we're going to look at it in more detail today and see what it really means. Because as you are sitting there, I'm sure that some are thinking, as I probably would, well, I know that verse. I know what it means. 
There's a difference between knowing something academically and knowing it deep in the heart. And I, I hope that we can look at this a little differently than perhaps we might have. It says, I am crucified with Christ. Brethren, are you? Am I crucified with Christ? I've been baptized, and so have most of you. But are we crucified with Christ in the way that the verse is talking about there? Let's go back to Romans, the sixth chapter, and let's look at it again. Romans 6 and verses 5 and 6. He says, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. You see, I am crucified with Christ. So our old man, our old way of thinking must be crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Notice over in the 8th chapter, verse 12, it says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. So we have a debt to pay, but that debt is not to live according to the ways of this world, according to the ways of the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die, and so will I. If we live according to the flesh... That's what Paul tells us, is that we're going to die. But if by the Spirit, with the help of God's Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Now, I have to ask myself the question, am I led by the Spirit of God? And I hope you'll ask yourself the same question. Are you led by the Spirit of God? Because it says, if we're led by the Spirit of God, we are the sons of God. Or for our ladies, the Apostle Paul tells us over in the 18th verse of 2 Corinthians 6 that uh, we will be sons and daughters. So are we the children of God, sons and daughters of God, or are we not? In Colossians, the third chapter, Colossians 3, and we're going to get more specific about some things here. But let's get the overview of what the Scriptures tell us. In Colossians 3 and verse 5, it says, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. You know, this is something that our, our young people, and, and frankly, uh, those who are not so young, need to look at. How much of the world have we absorbed? Right now, in today's world, for a young man and a young woman, or for that matter, an older person, because I find that sometimes older people think that, well, these laws were meant for young people, but we're mature. We can do things according to a different standard. Uh, this thing of fornication, sex before marriage, it's amazing how rampant it is. It's at the point where people just say that, well, that's normal. And there are people in God's church that get caught up in this as though they are an exception or this is an archaic idea instead of something that is a commandment of God to, to flee fornication where it says that in, in uh, 1 Corinthians, to flee fornication. He says, because of these things, the idolatry, the covetousness, evil desire, uncleanness, fornication, etc., because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. And as we get closer to the end of the age, we see the wrath of God on the way. We see problems today in our world that, uh, I mean, the consequences of our, of our actions are beginning to crash down around us. And they're beginning to crash down pretty heavily, and it's going to be get, a, get a lot worse before it gets better. But we begin to see some of these things happening in our world today. So as it says in verse 7, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. Okay, before baptism, yes, we did live in some of those things. 
But after baptism, after we come up, if we are crucified with Christ, we should no longer live in those things. We made a covenant with God that we're going to come up to a new man, a new way of life. And the question is, have we? Have we come up to a new way of life? And verse 8, but now you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Have you put filthy language out of your mouth? You know, some of you have been around in the church for a long time. And it's interesting when you visit with someone and that individual has to stop in mid-sentence because you know the next word was not three letters or five letters, something in between. And the individual stops right there because he knows his audience. He knows that here you are a minister and doesn't want to say something. And you realize that this must be something this individual has been saying at work or in the neighborhood, wherever he is, because it's right there on the tip of his tongue, as it were. Now, many of us had to fight that when we first came into the church. I certainly did. My language had to be cleaned up because not what... God would consider to be right language. And so for a number of months, uh, it, was, it was a struggle. But when somebody's been in the church for 5 or 10 or 15 or 20 years, this should not be a struggle anymore. It really shouldn't. Because the very fact that you can walk into services and have clean language tells, you know, tells me, and it should tell everybody, that I am capable of talking the right way. But then when you get back on the job, if you talk different, you're allowing yourself to get into that habit uh, of saying the wrong thing. So he says, filthy language out of your mouth. We're to put off all of these things. You know, this day typed, uh, or, or this was typed, all of this was typed by the days of unleavened bread to be crucified with Christ, to put to death, go through that watery grave of the Red Sea. And it was a grave for the Egyptians, but to come out of that under the other side, to the other side. It says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Unfortunately, well, it's really fortunately because that's part of God's plan, but difficultly for us, we must still live in this evil world. In Romans, the sixth chapter, and verse 11, Romans 6, once again, and verse 11, it says, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless, I live. I died to this, you know, to sin, but I am to be alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But the world in which we live is an evil world. Galatians 1, verses 3 and 4 tell us that. Galatians 1, verse 3 says, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, Who gave himself for our sins. He was crucified for our sins. That he might deliver us to bring us up to a new way of life, that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. So we live in this present evil age. And the depths of the evil in this world sometimes are hard for us to comprehend. I've said so many times that if you sleep with a skunk, it does not mean you are a skunk but you're going to smell like one. It's going to happen. You'll smell like the skunk if you sleep with them. And we've been sleeping in a stinking world. And that world has rubbed off on every single one of us to a far greater degree than we can possibly imagine. Let me give some examples. The, the first one is, I like to go back to my, my childhood on this. When I was... Uh, a young fellow, I've probably spoken about this before, uh, I, I went to a lot of movies. I didn't grow up in the church, 
And so every Saturday afternoon, you could know where I would be. I would be at the movies because uh, it only cost me 15 cents to go to the movies. A little bit later, it was 25 cents, but it was 15 cents. And even my parents, who didn't have a lot of money at that time, and even though money was worth a whole lot more than it is today, uh, could afford to send me off to the movies, or I mowed lawns. I did different things, shoveled snow. and So I had enough money to go to the movies every Saturday. And, you know, most of the time, those movies were cowboy movies. And uh, we, as I've said in the past, we always went to the movies to see the, the barroom fight because there was a certain... Uh, pattern of, of most cowboy movies. They were they were putting them out uh, as fast as they could put them out in those days back in the 50s and early 60s, and and uh, we'd go to those movies and we'd you know they had the singing cowboy and we never liked the singing cowboy. Uh, we never liked the uh, the romantic cowboy. We wanted to see the, the barroom fist uh, swinging, uh, throwing people through plate glass windows, uh, turning over tables, hitting people over the head with bottles. Well, that, that's what we went there for. But there was another little part to those movies that I remember very clearly. And sometimes it's the subtle thing that is more damaging and more dangerous than the more obvious thing. And this is why these days of Malem Red are important to us, because if we don't realize that there is a spirit behind all these things that is promoting certain attitudes, certain things that affect our psyche, that affect the way that we think and the way that we formulate ideas, if we don't understand that, we're going to drink that in, we're going to have it come into our, our minds, our hearts, and we're going to react accordingly. Now, let me give an example of what was oftentimes a, a theme in the movie. It was, it was a, a little teeny tiny part of the movie. It didn't matter whether it was the good guys fighting the bad guys, but more often than not, it was the, uh, the cowboys and the Indians. And so here is the wagon train. It is circled, and the Indians are riding around on bareback ponies, and they're shooting arrows, and the cowboys are shooting their, their uh, rifles at the, the Indians. And uh, there would oftentimes be a preacher, and he'd have his preacher garb on. And at some point, he is going to solve the problem. And so he takes his Bible, and he walks out there right in the middle of this battle. And we all knew what was going to happen. The idiot was going to get killed. He was going to get an arrow right through him. But that happened in a number of cowboy movies where the preacher would go out there and he would start preaching to the, the Indians or preaching to the bad people and somebody would shoot him or either with a gun or an arrow. It happened. Now, what was the subtle message that was given there? What what message, I don't know that the people who wrote those things necessarily were consciously saying it, but there is a spirit behind these things. And I think there was a little bit more of a, a conscious understanding of what was being done than we might want to give them credit for. But the, the conscious message is that a, a preacher, a minister, a, a man of the cloth, a man of the Bible, is unrealistic. He doesn't understand the real world. And he is foolish to believe that he can change the world and so forth. Well, we, we, we recognize we're not going to change this world without Christ's return. But there was a subtle message that a, a minister, a preacher, was an idiot, just to put it bluntly. Uh, he was out of touch with reality. And, you know, that message has been planted or was planted in the minds of millions of young people who used to go to those movies that religion is out of touch with the real world. Very subtle, but it does have an effect. And the average person seeing that just sees that and, and doesn't really comprehend what is behind that message. In John, the 17th chapter, John 17 and verse 14, John 17, 14. Jesus said on the night in which he was uh, crucified in this prayer to his Father in heaven, he says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, 
just as I am not of the world. Now, are you of the world? Am I of the world? Do we share the same feelings, the same thoughts, the same actions as the world? Do we think like those people around us, or have we come out of that? When I was quite a bit younger, I used to go to the James Bond movies, as an example. As I've gotten older, I've recognized that there is nothing in a James Bond movie that is anywhere near close to the, uh, the attitude of mind and heart of God the Father and Jesus Christ. We, we used to rationalize in our carnal minds that uh, we'd, we'd go there for the stunts, you know, like Moonrakers, uh, incredible. They, they get in this fight on this plane and they go out of the plane and, and literally one man does not have a parachute. And I saw an interview afterward when they were talking about how it was done. And I forget the exact number. It was 21, two or three uh, jumps, maybe up to 27. I don't remember the exact number. They had to jump out of this plane, or one man did, without a parachute over 20 times. And they would have a wrestling scene in the air, and then he'd have to go off, were off, and somebody would have to put a parachute on him or give him a parachute or strap himself to the other person, I don't remember the exact details, and come down, and then he got to do it up, uh, go back up, and do it over again. That's amazing. Uh, that takes a lot of, a lot of skill, a lot of uh, courage and everything. So we, we would think that, wow, we, we go for the, for the, the stunts. But what about all the violence? What about all the sexual immorality? What about all those things that went along with the movies? Now, I'm not telling you what you can look at and what you can't. All I know is that I cannot, in good conscience, uh, go back to that. Because I cannot picture in my mind Jesus Christ sitting in a James Bond movie. Uh, there is nothing in the scriptures that would seem to allow that or encourage that sort of thing to happen. I'm, I'm sorry, I don't mean to, to wreck your plans for tonight, if that's what you have in mind, but I think that there comes a time when we have to be honest with ourselves before God and say, okay, what is right? What would Jesus do? And as Mr. Merrith has written in the past and given a sermon, what would Jesus really do? What are the Scriptures? What do the Scriptures tell us about His frame of mind, His way of thinking, His way of feeling, His way of doing things? And we have to be honest with ourselves, brethren, and I'm not trying to condemn anybody here, because, you know, most of the time I speak from things that, that affect me. And I have to look at my attitude, and I have to look at my way of life, and I have to say, okay, what is it that I need to change? Because just like the Apostle Paul, there is nothing good in me. There really isn't. And I know that better than anybody else except my wife, perhaps. And she can't even get into my head, so she doesn't know everything that I think or say or do. But there's nothing good in any one of us. And that's a starting place for us to recognize that. And we cannot kid ourselves about these things. We have to be honest about uh, the way that we are. He says in verse 16, or verse 15, I do not pray that you should take them, his disciples, out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Brethren, are we of the world? Is there still a lot of the world in us? As we come to this last day of unleavened bread, 2009, have we expunged from our, our thinking, our reasoning, have we expunged the world? Well, I, I don't think that we're ever going to completely, until we're resurrected, changed with when Christ returns, but can we find certain things today, during this day, these days of unleavened bread, can we look at our lives and say, you know, this has got to change. 
This is something that, that I've been fighting for a long time, and I've been rationalizing around it, reasoning around it, that I actually have to make a change. Because otherwise, we've come here, we've looked in the mirror, we said, oh, there's a spot, there's a blemish, and then we just go about our merry way, as it says there, I believe in James, the first chapter, uh, about looking into the mirror and, and so forth. We, we've got to look in the mirror and we've got to say, okay, here's a blemish, here's a problem, here's something that needs to change, and then we have to begin to make that change. And that process really does have to begin. He says in verse 16, They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify, which means to set apart for a holy purpose, sanctify or set them apart by your truth. Your word is truth. So it is the word of God that tells us the truth. It is not what I think. It is not what you think. It is not, here's how I look at it, or this is the, you know, a, a woman's point of view, or a man's point of view, or a teenager's point of view. Uh, it, that's not what matters. There's only one thing that matters, and that's what God's point of view is. And the only way we're going to know it is to absorb, to drink in, to feed on these words. In Ephesians, the second chapter, Ephesians 2 and verse 1, again, a very uh, famous passage of Scripture, uh, at least in the church it is, uh, Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 1, he says, And you he made alive. Yes, we came up out of the baptism tank. He made us alive. I am crucified with Christ. We died and it says, yet nevertheless, I live. So we live. But he's made us alive when we were once dead in trespasses and sins. Because of our trespasses, because of our sins, we were really dead. We just didn't know it. But when we went into that watery grave, we came up to a new way of life. He says, who are dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Now, I'd like to talk a little bit about one aspect of the course of this world that I think that we really need to focus in on. I've had a couple people in the last couple days that have... Uh, talk to me a little bit about something, and it's helped me to, to even evaluate my thinking about it, and that is this world's politics. You know, in 2008, uh, both Canada and the United States went through elections. Uh, it was the most unusual election of my lifetime uh, during uh, the, the, the uh, president, presidential election for the United States, uh, it was a, uh, well, what do we say? It, it was unusual. It was historic. It was an amazing election. It's easy for us to get caught up in politics. In fact, it's hard for us not to get caught up in politics. And here's the reason why it's hard for us not to get caught up. There does happen to usually be one side of the political spectrum that is wrong on every single moral issue. Abortion, same-sex marriage, homosexuality, etc. And so it's easy for us to begin to identify with the other side of the equation. Those that are uh, against, the, uh, against abortion, against same-sex marriage, and so forth. And it's not hard for us to get caught up in that. In the United States, especially more than it is in Canada, uh, we have a, a great divide between liberal and conservative. And in Canada, it's really liberal, more liberal, most liberal, etc. But in the United States, there is a, a real battle that goes on over what is often referred to as social conservatism. And maybe we could put it a different way over moral uh, values, uh, over the culture war. There's a culture war that is going on in the United States. And if we are not careful, there is a spirit being out here 
directing the course of this world that can manipulate you and me. And the problem is that we can get caught up in all this politics to the point where Satan gets us exactly where he wants us. We might say, well, I don't vote. But in our minds, we certainly are voting. And furthermore, we're being divided because politics by its very nature is divisional. It divides people's loyalties, their, their, their candidate. I, I know a man who, before coming into the church, was a politician. I won't mention his name because some know who, who I'm talking about and some obviously would not. And I don't want to embarrass him because I think that that's one of the things that he repented of and, and necessarily doesn't want it brought up all the time. But I asked him one time, because I think when he went into politics, knowing this man, he really genuinely wanted to help people out. He went in with good intentions, probably like many people who go into politics. But as he pointed out that when the other party had a good idea, maybe a terrific idea, those over him and his party were telling him that we have to be against this idea. The loyal opposition. Now, I'm not sure exactly why they call it the loyal opposition, except that you must be loyal to be opposed. I mean, you must be loyal to opposition, to opposing the party in power. It didn't matter what was good for the country. If the other, idea, the other party had this idea, you had, by the very nature of your job, to be opposing to it. And that's just the way that politics does work. And we talk about bipartisanship and crossing over the aisle and all this type of thing. But the bottom line is that each party is out for itself. And so we get into this situation where we are uh, arguing, shall I shoot my grandmother in the morning or the afternoon? Now, there might be a, uh, a reason why if you're going to shoot your grandmother, it'd be better in the morning or the afternoon. But the whole premise is wrong from the beginning. We shouldn't shoot our grandmother. That's, that's obvious, right? So if we are looking for a new world, if we are ambassadors for Christ, as one of our hymns uh, says, and as, as Corinthians tells us, that we are ambassadors for Christ, I believe it's Corinthians, which, whichever verse that is, um, we, we are to be ambassadors. An ambassador doesn't take part in the politics of another nation. He represents something else. And we are ambassadors for Christ. We are ambassadors of a different kingdom. We're not looking to solve the world's problems through the, uh, the, the, the conservatives or the liberals or the NDP as it is in, in uh, Canada or the Republicans or Democrats as it is in the United States. That's not where we're looking. You see, that's the wrong premise from the start because both sides are wrong. Even if we say, well, this side's a little bit better, it's still wrong. Because the whole premise of politics is wrong. And without us realizing it, sometimes we even, in our, the way that we express ourselves, we say, well, you know, the, the Europeans, as an example, have, um, uh, they, they are ruling from Brussels against the will of the democratically elected officials. As though the democratically elected officials are, are good or the will of the people. The will of the people is not what is really important. It's the will of God that's important. And so in a lot of subtle ways, we make political statements without even realizing it. Now, the, the greatest danger of politics, as I see it, is that it builds hatred. When we start saying things like, I can't stand that man or that woman. When we begin to make derogatory comments in that way, what, what do we mean when I can't stand that person? Well, I know what we mean. But have we ever looked in the mirror and said to ourselves, honestly, what's in my heart? What is really in my heart? Let's notice over in Matthew, the fifth chapter, Matthew 5. And verse 21. Go right here to the, uh, the, uh, the uh, Sermon on the Mount. The heart and the core of Jesus' message. 
He says in Matthew 5, 21, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council, but whoever says, You fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Now, you know, what exactly does that mean? The, the attitude of you fool, in other words, you worthless, good-for-nothing individual, we sometimes even use as though we think it's humorous. I, I've been guilty of this. We say, well, that person's an airhead, or that's a good-for-nothing person. Well, you know, that's not a godly attitude. That's not how Jesus Christ thought. And he's telling us that murder begins in the heart and the mind with an attitude of hatred. And we play games with ourselves. We say, well, I don't hate that person. I just don't like him. Or I don't hate that person. I just can't stand him. Uh, we, we play all kinds of mind games to take ourselves off the hook instead of looking in the mirror and saying, you know what? There's something sinful about my, my thinking. There's something wrong with my thinking. You know, Mr. Meredith, in the Council of Elder meetings in the opening session uh, back in November of 2008, uh, told us that we needed to pray for the president-elect. We need to pray for the man. Uh, his, his problem is a little bit that he's, uh, he's liberal, you know, socially and so forth. That's the problem. But we're not to hate this individual. We have to have love. I'm using my words now. We have to love that individual. He is our president. We need to pray for him. God tells us in his word that we need to pray for kings and rulers. Can we do that? Can we, from the heart, get down our knees and really pray for that person? If we can't, there's something wrong with our thinking. And Satan is manipulating us to develop hatred in our hearts. And when we get polarized, taking one side over the other, as it were, in politics, to where we are thinking wrong thoughts, where we want to, you know, destroy somebody, we wish that they would just die or be assassinated or whatever it might be, Satan is manipulating us, and we have crossed the line. And we've got to be honest with ourselves and ask ourselves, have I crossed the line? And we can't kid ourselves because there's one person that we will never, one being that we will never pull the wool over his eyes, and that's God the Father, and of course Jesus Christ. We cannot fool ourselves concerning these things. And First John, the second chapter, First John 2. And verse 15, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, flesh the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world, and all this world's politics, all sides of it is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Notice over in uh, Luke, the ninth chapter. Luke, the ninth chapter. You know, here we have an example of the disciples, including the one that uh, just wrote those words. Luke 9. And... Verse 51, it says, Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him, for Jesus, to be received up. So this is at the end of his ministry, toward the end of three and a half years' ministry. He says, It came to pass, when the time had come up for him to be, rece or for him to, to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set 
for the journey to Jerusalem. And when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? In other words, they were appealing to an Old Testament passage and not understanding why that was at that time. They're just looking at, wow, we can call fire down from heaven. Do you want us to do that, Lord? And notice what Jesus said to him. Verse uh, 55, But he turned and he rebuked them, saying, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. But how many times have we, in the church of God, expressed just nuking someplace or uh, turning the desert into glass or saying of some political figure, I can't stand that individual or speculating on whether the person is going to live or die. How many times have we allowed race or political persuasion to affect us. If we watch ABC, CBS, and CNN, or just about any of the Canadian networks, uh, we're, we're going to look at things if we identify with those. We're going to look on one side of the political spectrum. If we listen to talk radio in the United States, we're going to look on the other. But we need to understand that neither one is God's way. Yes, there's going to be a little bit of good, but there's going to be a little bit of good from both sides, and there's going to be a healthy dose of evil. And you can have the most wonderful meal and a little bit of poison in it, and it'll kill you. And we need to not allow ourselves to be manipulated by Satan and by other individuals who have their own agendas to develop that hatred and that animosity. And, you know, I, I have to fight that myself because I realize that it's easy for me to get caught up in those things. And maybe I'm talking to others who get caught up in it. But I know I've had a couple people, a couple members, bring this to my attention and say, you know, I, I see things in the church from people who have been in the church 20 and 30 and more years who have attitudes that scare me, that make me wonder, is this person even converted? So, for whatever it's worth, look in the mirror. Maybe there's something that we need to change. We live in this world, but we're not to be of this world. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. I live in this present evil world. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Does Christ live in you? Notice Colossians 3. Go back to Colossians again. You can actually read the third chapter of Colossians, and it really describes all of this process, but uh, sometimes it's not quite in the same order. But Colossians 3, verse 1, it says, If then you are raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. So it's not a matter of just putting something out. We are to seek those things which are above. We are to identify with Christ's thinking. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, you were crucified with Christ. You died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, you see Christ is in us. He is our life. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And how we look forward to that absolutely wonderful and incredible day when Christ will come back and we will be raised up to have spirit bodies, never again to experience the pain, the suffering, the tiredness, and also never again to sin. I, I don't know about you, but I, I look forward to that day when I will never again have to get down on my knees and say, Father, forgive me. Um, because as spirit beings, we won't sin. Now, we will always humble ourselves before our Father, but we won't have to ask for forgiveness for some dumb, stupid 
thoughtless action that we have committed. And I hope that you look forward to that day in the same way, and I think that we do. I, I know that many of God's people look forward to the day not only just to be spirit beings, but to be able to be finished with sin forever. So we are to have Christ live in us. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Let's notice over in Philippians, the second chapter, Philippians 2. This tells us the attitude of mind that we must have. Verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. We must be concerned for other people. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it to be robbery, consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. He humbled himself, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now, if Christ humbled himself and gave himself in that way, then can we not, as it says in Romans, the 12th chapter, do our reasonable service, which is to give our lives as living sacrifices, living sacrifices to do the work of God. God did not call you, and he did not call me, just for salvation. And it took me a long time to understand that. But God is not calling us only for salvation. He called us now because we are to do a work. And by doing that work, he is going to then reward us in his kingdom. By being on the ground floor, as it were, of the kingdom of God. To be that bride of Christ at his return. He says, I beseech you, Romans 12, verse 1, Therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, not dead sacrifices, but as we live, we are to sacrifice our desires, our wants, our needs, to be living sacrifices, holy, acceptable to God. Notice which is your reasonable service. This is not unreasonable for God to ask us to sacrifice ourselves, not killing ourselves or allowing ourselves to be killed. I, that could happen, but... The point is, while we're living, we are to sacrifice our wants and our desires and to care for others, to love others as Christ loved us. Living sacrifices, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world. Come up to a new way of life. Come up out of Egypt into the promised land, as it were. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, be changed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. It takes us time. We have to prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And that doesn't happen in year one or year two alone. It, it happens over a period of time. And for me, this is, I guess, about my 45th Feast of Unleavened Bread, I, I think it's somewhere around 45, plus or minus one. And uh, it still hasn't been completed. Uh, I, I'm still having to put to death the very deeds of, of, of the body and mind. I'm having to mortify the deeds of the flesh, uh, change. And God help each and every one of us if we are not continuing to change. We've got to change. We need to overcome what we are. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Our mind is what has to be renewed, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So as it says, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. We see that Christ must live his life in us. Let's look at some examples of this. To be very specific, Colossians, the third chapter. Let's go back to Colossians 3 once again. 
And we'll begin in verse 9. It says, Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man, since you were crucified with Christ, with his deeds, and have put on the new man, Christ lives in you, and have put on the new man, who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So he is creating us in the image of him who created him. God is creating in us a new person. And that's wonderful, because the closer we can become to the image of God, the happier we're going to be, the more successful we're going to be. That's what we all should greatly desire. He says, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, etc., verse 12, therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies. We must put on Jesus Christ, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. We must put on his characteristics, his attitudes. Mr. Meredith, in, uh, again in the Council of Elders back in uh, 2008, uh, the November one, uh, still recovering from uh, the stroke that he had, uh, he said, we need to think what God thinks, feel what God feels and want what God wants. That's profound. That, that's a quote that you might want to write down and put it someplace where you can think about it often, where you can meditate about it. We need to think what God thinks, feel what God feels, and want what God wants. Very profound statement. He says, therefore, Colossians 3.12, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies. This is what God thinks and feels and the way that God is. Tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, meaning patience, bearing with one another or putting up with one another. That's a tough one. Sometimes... People are hard to put up with, but we have to learn to do that. Bearing or putting up with one another and forgiving one another. How often I have run into situations in the church where one person simply will not forgive another person in the church. Uh, I, I've had situations where I've done everything I could to get two people together and, and where the one person says, well, why should I? That person's not converted. Well, that's wonderful. God has made you the judge of whether that person's converted or not. And so you go to the other person, and, and that person's attitude is the same thing. Well, why, why should I talk to that person? He's not even converted. He'll do no good. Uh, that, that's something that is just simply unacceptable. It's unacceptable in the sight of God to have that, that type of an attitude. Now, you know, maybe the person isn't converted but to bury the hatchet, uh, to have love for that person, real love, not just words, but to show that person love, uh, that's the thing that we ought to do. Bearing, putting up with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. And there's no middle ground. We either do it or we don't. We've got to stop kidding ourselves. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Now, the peace of God is not the absence of conflict. The peace of God has to do with a, a really settled attitude. It's a bond of peace, real peace to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do, whatever it may be do, uh, that you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then he gets into some specifics. And I don't have time to go into them at this time, but ladies, read verse 18. 
Read verse 18. Husbands, men, read verse 19. Children, you who are sitting there in your seat, those of you old enough to understand, read verse 20. It tells us what pleases God. And you've got to do those things. Fathers, here's how you are to treat your children. Bond servants, if you work for somebody, here's what you are to do. In chapter 4, verse 1, masters, here's how you're to treat your servants. So these are the standards. This is God's way. And we need to evaluate ourselves and say, okay, am I aligned with God's way of thinking or am I not? The verse goes on to say, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. The faith of Christ. Not our own faith, but Christ's faith in us. In Romans, the first chapter, as it says there in, in Romans 1, uh, verse 16 through 17, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, Romans 1, 16. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Now, we have to, to make sure that we understand that it doesn't matter whether we're Israelite or non-Israelite, God looks upon all people who accept him as his children, all those in whom his spirit dwells. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. And as it says over in Hebrews 11th chapter, verse 6, it's impossible to please God without faith. It takes faith to obey God. Otherwise, we're going to look at it humanly, and it's not going to work out. The faith of God, not our own human faith, but it says from faith to faith, from our human faith to God's faith in us. That's what we need, the faith of Jesus Christ by the power of his Spirit in us. Who loved me and gave himself for me. Do we really need to say much more than that? The Passover that we celebrated seven days ago, when we kept that Passover eight days, how we count that, um, the eighth day ago, that pictured Christ's sacrifice, his tremendous sacrifice that he went through. He loved us, and he gave his, himself for us, for each one of us. During this past week, we were commanded to eat unleavened bread. And the reason that we eat it is the picture feeding on a different way of life, feeding on Jesus Christ. Over in John, the fifth, uh, sixth chapter... John 6, it says in verse 53, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. Now, of course, that pictures the Passover service. We take the bread and the wine. But notice, it says in verse 58, this is the bread which came down from heaven. Let me go verse 57, I'm sorry. It says, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. And then down in verse 61, it says, and when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Notice this, the words, verse 63, the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. You see, this is what we must feed on, are the words of Jesus Christ. We have to be studying these words. The, the Scripture is very specific, and it sums up better than anything that I know of what this day is about. It pictures a time when the children of Israel walked through the Red Sea. And so we can say, at this time, on this day, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved himself 
I'm sorry, who loved me and gave himself for me. For this week, leavening pictured malice and wickedness. It pictured wrong thinking, wrong feeling, wrong wants, and wrong deeds. For this week, unleavened bread, the unleavened bread pictured sincerity and truth. It pictured right thinking, right feelings, right wants, and right deeds. During this week, when we forsook the leavened bread, we will be reminded of our need to put to death our personal desires and to feed on Jesus Christ, which will lead to eternal life. What we are remembering at this time is that I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me.